Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Phase podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 45th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Stefania Mallette, co-founder and CEO of EasyCater, the world's largest marketplace for corporate catering. Stefania is a serial entrepreneur. One of her previous companies was acquired and the deal had a 14x return for its investors. Her current company, EasyCater, has raised almost $170 million in funding and is focused on being the dominant player for a $100 billion industry worldwide. We first covered EasyCater on VentureFizz back in 2014, and in the article, she was quoted by saying that they were going to be a billion-dollar company. Well, it's now four years later, and in our podcast, she shares the details on where they're at in terms of achieving that very goal, and let's just say it's trending in the right direction. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like what led her down the path of entrepreneurship and starting companies, the aha moment behind starting EasyCater and the early days of bootstrapping the business, So much great advice for not only building companies, but also building a successful marketplace. Her thoughts on hiring and how they've maintained a strong culture at scale with over 450 employees. Specific recommendations on how to become a leader, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you are new to our podcast, I want to say hello and thank you for listening. With this podcast, we are building the most extensive catalog of interviews with the top founders and investors from both Boston and New York City. There are so many great stories, so make sure you go to venturefizz.com backslash podcast to check out all of our previous interviews. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Stefania. Stefania, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I was uh, preparing for this interview and I went into the archives of Venture Fizz. And uh, Josh Boyle, who is one of my great writers, uh, was early on kind of writing about Easy Cater. And this is an article back in 2014. And from it, uh, there was part of the article where he asked you and he wrote about this, where Easy Cater is going from here, meaning 2014, and your response was quick and direct, quote unquote, we're going to be a billion dollar company. So this was four years ago. So I wanted to revisit that little little piece of information that I found that I was like, wow. So where are you now in relation to that goal that you set out literally four years ago? Oh, that is so cool. So I don't, apparently I didn't say it to him because Josh is such an excellent writer. He would have captured this. But around that time, I started saying, we're going to be a billion dollar company in five years. Wow. It would mean in 2019. And we are exactly on pace. That is awesome. We are a force in the city of Boston and proud of having achieved that. I grew up around here and it's kind of cool for me that things happen like my real estate a realtor who had sold me a house and had bought me a house over the years sent me an email saying, I hear your ads on NPR all the time. I love that. And by the way, I just went and played golf with a girlfriend of mine. This is a woman realtor, a friend of hers. The two of them were together golfing. And she said, and my girlfriend said that her daughter is going to work at Easy Cater. And I thought, <laughs> this is such a cool thing. That so yeah, so the cool. billion dollars is... is uh, I can reach out and touch it. That is phenomenal. Congratulations on the foresight and success. Obviously, I'm sure there was a lot of work to get there. So we're going to talk about that. But let's go backwards. Um, so w- where did you actually grow up? You said, you know, the Boston area, but you know, what did your parents do for work? More of that foundation level stuff. Sure. So I grew up in Newton, 
Uh, my parents, I'm first generation. I could be president. My parents could not. They're both dead now, but they uh, immigrated here from Europe. My mom from Switzerland, my father from Milan. And they were kind of classic at that time, my mom stayed home with four children, and my father was uh, at a PhD in topology, was a math professor for a little while, but did not prefer teaching. What he wanted to do was get more into industry. So he, with another guy, put together, started, and ran to considerable success, something called an applied mathematics laboratory. They used smart brains. At one point out of 50 employees, they had 35 PhDs working there. And they used their brains to solve interesting real world problems, numerical control algorithms for stitching machines that did cowboy boots, uh, scaling up the Bucky Fuller's geodesic dome and making it the Buckminster dome, making it be all different sizes, um, coding, algorithms for the government for secret encryption it was all very cool stuff uh so i got from him use your brain and be an entrepreneur well i was gonna say so it sounds like that was kind of the foundation for what led you down the path of studying at mit and <laughs> so you're electrical engineering computer science was that what you studied yeah, at mit yeah, yeah exactly so. right i always say if my father had been a forester i'd have been a forester <laughs> <laughs> father had been a sous chef, I'd have been a sous chef. <laughs> but it turned out that he did something in computers. In the earliest days of computers, he got involved with the computers. And so I did too. And boy, I'll tell you, it's better to be lucky than smart. Having fallen into an industry that was essentially on the way up mm -hmm. in the early days, I got involved pretty early. I've been doing this for a while. I graduated school in the mid 70s. And so it was the early days of computers. And I have been able to ride that wave. Did you start your career at digital? My first, well, I worked for my father a couple times, mm -hmm. but then my first job in the real world was indeed Digital Equipment Corporation. Yeah. Uh, I was a work study student from MIT to digital. We they did a, had a work study program at MIT. They still do, I think. And and then my first job after school was at digital, and then I left there and went out into the greater world. I remember digital was at the time struggling. This was actually cool. When I left in the mid 1977, they were aiming for being a billion dollar company. And that wow. was, I just forgot. I, I forgot that until just now. <laughs> there was their big target was to be a billion dollar company, which in 1977 was a pretty big deal selling computer hardware. That was a big deal. And I so it was by everybody's standards at the time a big company and I left in part because it was kind of like MIT graduate school I really needed to get into a different environment but in part because I thought I wanted to work at a place that did a better job of long-term planning and many jobs later I understood that nobody does a very good job of long-term <laughs> planning and that I had a very naive young person's yardstick and that they were just as good as everybody else. <laughs> but well, I didn't know that. Well, once you moved on from, from Digital Equipment Corporation, that's kind of when your uh, career really started to, to skyrocket. So intranet, from what I gathered, I, th I thought it was one thing, but then when I read what they actually did, it wasn't like, you know, intranets, right? Where, you know, that's what I thought it was, but it was 
software systems to facilitate electronic payments. So this was early precursor e-commerce type thing? No, this was wire transfers. This is wire the backbone okay. of the payment systems in the United States. The wire transfers, when you wire money or when you ACH money, mm -hmm. those are two different ways to get electrons to represent that money has transferred from you to me. Got it. The other way around. And they were intranet before the word got used in the context of the World Wide Web. Before the World Wide Web, the intranet software company was uh, helping large banks in the United States, large and medium-sized banks in the United States, find ways to connect the networks, the wire payment networks. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, a connection intra between these networks. And that was, uh, and it was very successful. It was the market leader. Still is around, bought by, I've lost track. Bought ACI. By spun know, out, right? Yeah, ACI and then yeah. Pulitzer and Haney or something, then ACI acquired them, I think. Yep, exactly. Did a good job. Uh, I learned a lot from working there. It was one of the many chapters of my life, and I've learned from all of them. I had a lot of fun with that, including the idea that you really should take what you do seriously. There was a time where it dawned on us that if our system had crashed simultaneously at all of our installed uh, installations, that we could shut down the U.S. economy. So we decided not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> so, so what led you down the path of starting your own company? Yeah. I was, I had been working for almost 20, for 20 years for other people. And I kept thinking, I don't like this. I would like more independence. I would like more freedom. I think I would like to give it a shot on my own. And I, thought naively that if you do that, you have more control over your future. It turns out you have no more control than you did in another environment, in a bigger company or in somebody else's company, but there's an illusion of that. You still have all of these customers. Your employees are your customers. Your customers are your customers. Your investors are your customers. But I just wanted to give it a shot on my own and, and, let, and, and run that experiment. Will it feel more free? And in some ways it still does. And in other ways, I think, no, I have all the same constraints that other places have. And what was that first company that you started? The first company was called Insight Marketing Technology. It was in the Wild West days of the web. It was launched in 1997. And we built a virtual sales advisor to help people purchase things in 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 e-commerce. E-commerce was a pretty new word at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember because we were focused on e-commerce, we were helping the big retailers of the day make their way into e-commerce for the first time. And because we were 100% focused on that, we knew more than many of them did. And we gave this advice. We said, if your website is doing as well as a single one of your brick and mortar stores, then you're doing well. And today, you know, that is laughable <laughs> advice. Right. But at that time, that was the yardstick. That was a good way to think about it. Our software worked. It worked pretty well. We got bought by SilkNet, which was based in New Hampshire. Right, in Manchester. In Manchester, New Hampshire. Jay Wood was the guy who started that company. He was the CEO and founder of that company. And he had taken it public. He was quite successful with that. 
I was actually a shareholder for a brief time of uh, SilkNet back in the, in those days, which is That's hysterical. Awesome. I hope you made money. Did you? I sell did. It? I did. Yeah. I, did. I mean, not anything to write home about, but I was like, wow, that was. I mean, it was yeah. cool. I was like, you know. So then we, so SilkNet then got bought by Kana, and that led to a very interesting learning experience for me. I had been pretty happy with insight marketing technology success. We had on small dollars achieved some pretty big clients, some very good success metrics for our clients and had gotten up to, I think about 40 people, happy people, happy employees. And I was walking around thinking this was pretty cool. And then Jay Wood shows up and says, Hey, I'd like to buy your company. And I look at Jay and I think, damn, this why I went from zero in about the same, a little bit longer, but not much longer than the period of time I had spent he had gone to 200 employees, not 40 employees, and he had taken his company public. And all of a sudden, I was all kinds of envious. <laughs> and then a year or two later, the guy from Kana out on the West Coast waltzes in and says, hey, we want to buy your company. And I watched Jay, whom I had all this time been jealous of, envious of. I watched Jay go, damn. In that period of time, he had gotten to his company to be bigger. Right. That's when I realized, oh, be happy with what's in front of you. There's always something else. There's always something bigger. Don't forget that what you did is still a good thing, even if somebody else is bigger, faster, cheaper, whatever. It was a pretty funny, funny lesson to watch Jay have exactly the same reaction to coming along as I had had to Silk coming along. Now that was a success. It was, I think I saw somewhere that maybe it was on your LinkedIn. It was, you know, a 14 times yeah. uh, return for the investor's money in a very short window of time. Yeah, that was definitely a success. We had a lot of happy uh, investors. We also had a lot of happy employees. They moved to SilkNet and had a new chapter in their careers. They mm -hmm. suddenly had become part of a bigger, more successful story and had opportunity there. So I think it was a success for a lot of people. Now, being the serial entrepreneur that you are, you went off and then started another company, uh, which was Preferred Time, the next one? Yeah, there were several chapters in between, um, the details of which I would get wrong if I tried to outline them. I do have them written down somewhere. But there were several in between. You have to find a good idea. You can't mm -hmm. just say, I'm going to start a company. You sure. have to find an idea. And I am not the idea person. I'm the operating exec. I need to follow idea people around. And I... The idea people often need an operating executive. They have a brilliant idea and somebody has to execute. I am a perfect match for those. That was the case at Insight Marketing Technology. It wasn't my idea, though I took a germ of an idea and built it out to be a product. In the same way then, I stumbled into a guy named Briscoe Rogers, who is an idea guy if ever there was one. He's like the archetype of ideas drop off of him like lint. And he had an idea to help sales reps, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry, but really it could have worked anywhere, uh, get solve the last mile problem, get in front of their customers. And so he needed an operating exec and I came in and helped build the company out of his idea. He has the ideas, he builds the product, I build the company. And that company helped our initial focus, as I said, was farmer reps, and about a third of all the farmer reps in the country were using us for at least some of their visits to some of their doctors. But we ran out of money before we got to profitability, and our investors all changed their minds. So we shut that thing down and started up 
easy cater because we had heard literally thousands of times. I have the file with all the data, literally thousands of times we had heard, please, can you help us cater food in, in support of this sales call? It turns out there are many industries in which if you want to call on your prospective client, you need to bring in food for the entire office. If you are calling on architects and you are, have any kind of building materials, things that buildings are made out of, you need to get the architect to spec your product in their next design. And the way you get attention from the architect is you bring in food for the entire architect's office. Who knew? <laughs> building holes um, uh, in... Uh, financial planners. If you want to call on financial planners, you're a financial wholesaler, you have to bring them lunch for the whole group. Yep. So great. It turns out this need that we had heard in with great clarity has proven to be the tip of a big iceberg. Now, before we get deeper into a Easy Cater, so you had success with Insight Marketing, a great return for your investors. You go off to your next company, you're probably feeling like, wow, this is great. We can just do this all over again. Yet you hit a roadblock where yeah. you had to close the doors and actually let employees go. Like, what was that like? And then, um, you know, actually dealing with the investors, you know, yeah. for something yeah. that didn't work out. Yeah. So after the first one, there's a great book called Learned Optimism by Martin Selig. Everybody should read this book. He defines what optimism looks like. And he clarifies uh, that you can be optimistic in some parts of your life and pessimistic in some parts of your life. And that optimists can be very valuable. Uh, for instance, you want in sales to have optimists. Optimists. Uh, pessimists can be very valuable. You want a pessimist running your nuclear reactor. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Yes. Realists are really good CEOs. Mm -hmm. And I'm a pretty realistic person, but I do have a streak of optimism, which is I never believe that my success is repeatable. And so I didn't come out too cocky after Insight, ah. insight Marketing Technology. Right. Still, uh, at, it was still disappointing when preferred time ended. Nonetheless, it ended with a couple elements of grace that I really cherish, that I treasure to this day. One was that when we called all the, I called all the investors to say, guys, you knew this was coming because I'm a very communicative uh, entrepreneur and my investors always say, you're the only one of the companies in my portfolio that have any idea what's going on. I communicate with them and I was uh, letting them know that we were getting to the end of, of the story and that I had all these hopes and I had almost saved the day and I thought it was going to be okay. But then no, at the last minute, the last white night disappeared and we shut things down. And I told, I called all the investors and said, look, I'm sorry, this is how the game is played, but I lost all your money. And one of the guys said, that's okay, Stefania. I'll invest in whatever you and Briscoe Rogers do next. And in the silence, I mean, people who know me know that I'm seldom struck silent, but I was struck silent. <laughs> and in that silence, I could feel this huge weight come off me that I didn't realize I'd been carrying, that I was feeling pretty terrible about this. And in that silence, he says, what is that, by the way? Mm. And I thought, he went from, you know, I'll do whatever you and Briscoe are going to do next. I'll invest in whatever you and Briscoe are doing next, whatever that is, basically. And that was 
astonishing. My heart leapt. And I said, well, actually, we do have an idea. He said, yeah, I kind of thought you would. <laughs> Which was, by the way, Briscoe's idea. You know, he was the guy. He's the, he's the idea guy. And he said, look, we have all this data about this meals business. So in that sense, this entrepreneur at a moment, I mean, this investor who himself is a serial entrepreneur, in that moment when I was pretty down, he said, he reminded me that this is how the game is played, that you lose some, you win some, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And importantly, he felt that we had tried as much as we could, we had done the best we could, and that that was pretty damn good. Even though we hadn't made money in the last company, he believed it, He that we would possibly be able to have a success at some future time. The other thing that was pretty impressive to me was all the employees. I had been as communicative to them as I have been to, had been to the investors. In fact, much more so. The, the employee, employees knew exactly what was going on. And when it was time to shut the doors, I said, okay, it's Tuesday. I have enough money squirreled away to pay you through Friday, but that's it. And I'm sorry, you knew this was coming. Um, if you all want to go home, you know, I'll pack stuff up and just, you can all go home. And to a person, they said, well, we're not leaving now. We have to tell all the customers. We have to help everybody. We have to package this up nicely. And we're not going to leave you with all this stuff. That's amazing. And I literally had to blink back tears. I still can feel it. It was fantastic. And I, I said, well, thank you. I mean, yes, <laughs> I won't say no to th that offer of help. Mm -hmm. And they were spectacular because they did everything that they were promised to do. They did it all by Thursday. We were all done and we were done. Well, I think that speaks a lot to your leadership style and the type of company culture that you build, which I want to get into that as well. But now, you know, fast forward to Easy Cater, you, you know, saw data from your previous business that led into you starting the current business. Uh, one of the things I think is important to note is, you know, it was heavily bootstrapped at first, right? For sure. For so, sure. so how did you go about building in the foundation of Easy Cater, you know, with that bootstrapping mentality? Yeah. Bootstrapping helps uh, make you get clever because you know you can't live forever in that mode and because you have to be creative. How, what's the cheapest, fastest path from here to there? And so we leveraged that, that approach. Honestly, there's a bunch of times in my life that I can see that it was anger even misguided anger that moved us to a good new place. I was, we were misguidedly angry at the venture capital people because of the struggles that we'd had at preferred time. And we said, we're only going to bootstrap this thing. Well, so we bootstrapped, which made us be very creative, made us figure out a lot of pieces before we tried to go out and get money. And it made us at the point where we did decide to turn to real venture investing made us have a very good story because we could say that we had tested every element of that flywheel that is a two-sided marketplace. And we could show metrics about the effectiveness of this part of the marketplace and how that drives the other part of the marketplace in that flywheel that turns the way I, I'm an engineer. So I describe it as there's gearing in the flywheel. And we could tell you if you change the, the gearing, what would happen? Because we had tested all that on, on short money. And and so it made us very attractive to the to more mature, grown-up investors. And when we started to bring in big money, now in hindsight, I'm very happy that we did that. Uh, there was another moment actually where we, in our 
in the interim stage where we had gone from little tiny angels who wrote $25,000 checks to a couple of super angels who wrote bigger checks. One of them offered us money at a crummy valuation that made me so angry that in this case, I don't think I was misguided. The first time I was definitely misguided. I said, get away from venture people. That was misguided. But then this guy just made me angry enough that we went out to the big players and said, so what do you people think we're worth? And they came up with a huge number. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so we, you know, and I'm pretending like I knew this all along, but secretly I'm thinking, holy crap, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> and it was because we were so angry that we were galvanized out there. It was really a very valuable uh, moment. Yes. What were some of the the early mistakes? You know, building out a two sided marketplace is really difficult. Do you get the caterers? Do you get the businesses? Like, yes. so, so what were some of the early mistakes that you made? A uh, couple mistakes. Oh gosh, many mistakes. But you said that this podcast has an end, so I won't give you <laughs> all of them. But a couple that are really telling. One is we had understood the use case very well from all the data we had collected in our previous company, but we had not understood how many different restaurants our customers would want. We made an estimate that probably across the country, six, maybe eight, maybe 10,000 restaurants would be enough for the whole country. <laughs> we did not understand that in fact, people want a lot more choice. Our average customer who is a repeat customer uses something close to 30 30 to 35 restaurants in the course of a year. They wow. love the variety. And variety helps a lot in, in uh, attracting new customers. So we, we were wrong about our projections of how much it would cost to create the, the, the supply side of the marketplace. The other thing we were wrong about was we wandered in the woods for quite a while, unsure whether to put energy into building up the demand side or into building up the supply side of the marketplace. Whether other people could articulate 11 years ago when we started the correct way to go about this and we just missed that or whether no one was articulating it, I don't know. But I'm here to tell you now, if you're building a two-sided marketplace, build the supply side. Mm -hmm. The demand will find you. So we spent quite a lot of energy finding demand and quite a lot of energy finding supply. And in hindsight, I would have worked more on the supply first. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, this is the advice. I get a lot of people calling me saying, you do a wonderful marketplace. Can you please give me advice? I have a new suggestion. I want to build a new marketplace. And I say, I'm sorry, I don't have time to help everybody. I just can't. But I'll tell you two things. One is build the supply side first. And the other is, get even just a handful of rapidly loyal customers. When you have enough features of the right kind, the exact right features, which doesn't have to be a long list, you have customers who are rapidly loyal, who will scream if you take their service away, then you can, with good supply and a handful of rapidly loyal customers, bootstrap that thing further. That's great, great advice. Now, for us, is there was there a breaking point when the business model really started to take off, and you're like, okay, this is this is validated, this is real. We need to scale this fast. This is pretty funny. Uh, I keep thinking, oh wow, this is the inflection point, and then we get to essentially a new plateau, and then we're there at that plateau, and things are going nicely, and then we realize, oh, there's another inflection point. So I can't point to one. Certainly, capital helped. Uh, the f the first big raise that we had in 
January, February of 2015. That was probably the most catalyzing raise, but everything since then, and, and even before, every time we had a raise, every time we had a new idea, every time we we recognized an inflection point and and kind of ran through that, you know, took it and, and capitalized on it, it's helped us a lot. Pay attention for what your inflection points are. Look at yourself. Keep watching, keep measuring, and keep looking at what you are seeing and think and figure out figure out sometimes by accident uh figure out what the things that make a difference to you are we had thought that more restaurants would be a good idea and one year our growth for several months our growth was slowing in ways that we couldn't figure out finally we understood what had happened we had inadvertently been creating our own headwinds because we had been taking restaurants away. The restaurants that were doing a really bad job for us, we took them away correctly. And it was a pruning of our network that we needed to do. But by doing that, the net number of restaurants that anybody would see when they came to our website was too small. And so our growth was slowing. We then understood that sign up lots of supply and sign it up to be high quality. We would never have had the nerve to turn off a lot of restaurants just to see what happens. <laughs> but it turns out we accidentally turned off a lot of restaurants and learned what happens. Lessons learned, yes. <laughs> learn from your own mistakes. There's a lot to learn from your own mistakes. Sit around and talk about them. Yeah. And how, how does Easy Cater make money? The restaurants give us uh, essentially a marketing fee, a finder's fee, a commission on each order. They don't make, they don't have to pay anything unless and until they get an order. But once they get an order, then all the exposure they get on our website has really paid off for them. And they're happy to give us a finder's fee. For the customer, it's free. And for the customer, the price is the same as what they would pay if they went to that restaurant directly. So as far as scaling the company on the operation side, what has been some of the more uh, you know, challenging aspects of, of scaling Easy Care to the stage it's at now? The most important thing that you that that we have done is learn how to hire really good people. Uh, at first, we did it all ourselves. Then we hired professional talent uh, people. We have a really top shelf recruiting team. Our hit rate on hiring people is very high. Once you know, we interview a lot of people, but once you've made it through the screen when we make you an offer if you say yes you're very likely to be very happy and we are very likely to be very happy with you so bringing on smart smart like smart fun yeah. nice helpful caring people who are holistic thinkers uh who are insanely helpful in whatever their role is that has been the biggest accelerant to our growth when you're interviewing someone for the first time, what is it that they would do that captivates you? And you're like, this person, you know, this is someone that we need on our team. Sure. I would ask our recruiting team that question to see what cleverness they bring to it. But I know one thing for me is, do they get excited about something? 
Do they get engaged about something? People say, well, you have to be passionate about something. And a lot of us, especially when you're younger, you think, I don't know what I'm passionate about. Well, it turns out we're all passionate, meaning we're, we all get excited when we talk about something. It might be the lemonade stand you had when you were in seventh grade or fourth grade. It might be the time that you were a camp counselor somewhere. It might be the time that you cracked a really hard problem set in your engineering uh, course. You, it, it might be the time that you were working as a candy striper in a hospital uh, and you were really helping people. There's something that you get excited about and that you can leverage that to find your passion. What we have here at Easy Cater is people who have something they've been interested in, which proves to us that they know how to tap into that part of themselves, the part that really gets interested in something. And then we put them in an environment in which we expect you to use your brain. We expect you to bring your heart to work. We expect you to bring your brain to work. And we allow you to do that, mostly because we just get the heck out of your way. And, and as a result, everybody here is engaged in the work they do. And which means that means that everybody does a super job of it. it well, there's another piece of the equation that I see some companies uh, not fumble, but try to figure out. It's scaling culture. Like, so you start off with a small team and everyone's kind of working hard, playing hard. I don't know, maybe a good work-life balance. And then, you know, when you've raised 170 million, like Easy Cater has in, uh, how many employees are you now? 450 something, 460 so, something. So how do you scale that same, you know, culture that you've built from the earlier days of the company? This is a learning that I've had in the last three years. I was afraid, like everybody else, that as the company gets bigger, the magic that is Easy Cater would become diluted and that we would lose our culture. In fact, it is the opposite. We have a culture that is self-reinforcing. We have, uh, by bringing in people who care, people who get engaged, and by allowing them to continue to get engaged, basically by not taking that away, and by explicitly asking everyone to please be a steward of that part of our culture, then it turns out the culture is 450 person strong, where before the early days, it was me. It was I and three others. It was a very small group that were keeping it going, but now everybody's keeping it going. And, it, and they make it better, they make it stronger. People bring in ideas from other companies that are stronger, uh, additions to what we have thought of. I can't think of everything and, and I don't have to. So it's a self-reinforcing culture in that part of it is you own it, figure it out, aim higher, make it better. That's part of the culture. And when that is part of the culture, if it's genuine, if we walk the talk, which we try really hard to do, then it, be self-reinforcing. Very powerful. What advice would you give to, to founders that you know are starting to see success in their company? And and like how do they learn how to lead if they've never had to like lead before? Like how do you become a leader and like who do you learn from? Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. So two lessons for me that have been very important are let go much more than you hold on. And a corollary to that, the second rule is 
when things get really bad, either because something's going wrong or because there's too much going on or because it feels like one of those crazy inflection points, don't tighten up. At that time, let more go. We all, not all, but almost all of us retreat when something goes wrong, we go into a clench position. Don't do that. When things get wacky, relax. When things get wacky, let more people in to solving the problem. When things get busy, delegate more. When things seem out of control, give more away. And surprisingly, if you've hired the right people, people who care, people who are genuinely driven by the intent to do better, then when more hands are at the tiller, you get back on course and get to a better course than if you try to clench the tiller all by yourself. Big lesson for me, I was born a micromanager. I was born a perfectionist. That's not true. I was turned into a micromanaging perfectionist by my family. (laughs) And I have been doing, trying to unlearn this. One of my sisters, this is a great lesson. Somebody said to her, you know, being a perfectionist is not a good idea. I mean, I think we should all stop being perfectionists. And she actually said, I'm not sure I'm good enough to be a perfectionist. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when I thought, we are really, really warped. So I am a recovering perfectionist, a recovering control freak, a recovering micromanager. Well, it's true. It's hard to scale yourself. You You can't. can't. You can't. And I guarantee you, no one is so brilliant that they can do as well as 450 smart people who are all rowing in the same direction, who all really, really care that the boat gets somewhere interesting, somewhere fast. I, there's no nobody on the planet who can do as well as my 450 people all rowing together can do. Speaking of which, I assume Easy Cater is hiring across oh, all kidding. functions. <laughs> I would There's like everybody who's person. listening to this podcast to immediately put down the, the, the podcast and dial 1-800-488-1803. That's our customer <laughs> service number. Just say, I want to talk to recruiting. <laughs> Apply on our website. Um, yes, we are hiring. We are, have, you know, we've hired 251 people year to date. Wow. That's and amazing. Yeah, and quite recently, like in the last weeks, someone said to me, somebody who's been hired a couple months ago said, you know, this company is the most bizarre combination of the most laid back and the most driven place I've ever worked. And I thought, wow, it happened again. Every few months, a new employee says this to me. The first time somebody said this was in 2014. And still now, you know, this person probably was the 230th person who'd been hired this year. And we still have that feeling. The most laid back and the most driven place. It's a really great combination. That is awesome. Well, uh, kudos to you and the Easy Cater team on your continued success. And yes, if you want to join the rocket ship known as Easy Cater, there's plenty of job opportunities on VentureFizz. Check out their biz page. But Stefania, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing all these great lessons learned and words of wisdom to our audience. Thanks for talking to me. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.